The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, age successfully making your second half of life better than the first. Today, we're going to talk about reinvention. It's a popular term these days. It's gained currency over the years as we saw the number of long, traditional careers with big companies disappear. Some of this trend resulted from changes in the workforce. People had more mobility, more options with two-income wage earners. Other factors include changing corporate behavior as companies look to keep their workforce lean and adapt to market conditions and recessions more quickly. This is especially true today, as both companies and workers are being forced to reinvent themselves as they try to make it through to the other side of this pandemic. So reinvention is in, solidly in vogue, but few do it like my guest today, Patricia King. At an early age, and I mean early, like age nine, Pat decided she wanted to be a novelist. She would eventually achieve her goal, some 60 years later, through an extraordinary journey of progressive reinvention that began long before her mid-career. She began as a technical writer for a large insurance company, then transitioned into corporate training, opening up a Wall Street bank to affirmative action programs for women. And then, as a single mother, she decided to leave the corporate nest to start her own consulting company, which over time, she built up into an international management consulting firm. Along the way, Pat wrote five nonfiction books on business subjects, including Never Work for a Jerk, which landed her on the Oprah Winfrey show. And then she left again for yet another entrepreneurial venture before becoming a novelist. Today, as we begin Women's History Month, I'll be sharing with you part one of my conversation with a remarkable woman as she recounts the many reinventions of her career, some with plot twists worthy of the novels she would eventually write. So now let's meet our guest, Patricia King. Pat, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be with you today, Ron. Uh, this is uh, just what I need uh, when I've been in solitary confinement for so long with COVID. Right, right. Well, Pat, I, I know that the show focused on 45 Forward, but you know some things like reinvention really start with many chapters before. So why don't we start out a little bit about how you got involved in the first place um, as a technical writer, which I not understand it's not what you originally intended when you were in college. So how did you start off? Uh, well, I, first of all, I, I come from a poor working class family. So the first way I had to reinvent myself was to decide not to be what I was born to be and uh, to go to college. And when I graduated, I, uh, I had a degree in English literature 
I liked chemistry and I wanted to study chemistry, but my father told me I would never get a job uh, in those days as a chemist. And he was right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did study chemistry also, but I I, uh, was an English lit major and uh, I didn't want to be a teacher. So I I got interviewed on the campus of my college, the College of St. Elizabeth in Convent, New Jersey. That gives you something mm-hmm. <laughs> to think about right there. And I, uh, and she interviewed me and she hired me as a technical writer for an insurance company. Uh, and I, uh, I went to work. I was commuting from my parents' house in Hawthorne, New Jersey mm-hmm. uh, to uh, 6th Avenue and 52nd Street every day. And I was supposed to uh, I started out, I was supposed to write procedures for insurance processes, and everything was done by hand in those days. But lucky me uh, that the Equitable Life Assurance Society decided to be the first company outside, the first place outside the Pentagon to have a real-time computer system. And I found myself working with the systems analysts who were designing uh, the software for that computer uh, system. And that was 1964. So uh, Mm. I had graduated in 63. So all of a sudden I was on the cutting edge of technology uh, with my English lit degree. And that was the the first step. Right. You know, I find it, you know, people often, you know, even when I was in college too, they'd say, so, I was an English lit major as well. I was like, well, what are you going to do with that? You know, yeah, so you're not going to teach, but it's interesting how useful it becomes when you actually have to use English in your work. And, and as you well know, one of the big problems is that people don't know how to write well. They may be oh. technical writers, but or they're technically uh, qualified, but they can't communicate. No, they can't. Uh, and, and in fact... Um uh, I one of the transitions that I made was because of that. Uh, the the systems analysts uh, didn't really know how to express themselves in clear, direct English, and uh, and uh, I was sitting at my desk uh, with one of them sitting near me when the big boss uh, who headed the project was walking by, and. Uh, I was saying, Harry, when this this sentence has 62 words in it, and I can't find a verb. <laughs> right. And uh, and I said, uh, here's what you need to do. And I was I was teaching him how to write good sentences. When the big boss paused in front of us and looked down at me, and walked away. About 45 minutes later my boss's boss came to me and said, Mr. Chafee wants to see you in his office. And I thought I was going to get fired. I thought he's, I'm supposed to be rewriting this stuff. I can't rewrite it because I can't understand it. He's angry because what I'm trying to do is make the engineers do my job. And I went into his office and little convent school girl that I had been, I started to apologize. <laughs> I said, oh, uh, you know, I know, I know you noticed what I was doing, but Mr. Chafee, I can't uh, rewrite their sentences because they don't make any sense. And he listened to me. He was a very patient and sweet man. 
And he said, um, well, thank you, Patricia, but uh, what I want you to do is to be in charge of training for this project. So I got a, I got it. Uh, and what he did was he gave me what my life work, what my life's work was going to be for the next 25 years by, uh, by doing that. So then I had to find, learn what I could about being a corporate trainer right. and start doing that. So it, you never know. You never know uh, when a door is going to open. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of these things where, you know, a, a lot of, you know, career development is, is accidental. And the trick is knowing to do with the accident, <laughs> what direction to take with intentionality. So, yeah. yeah. So now your corporate training was, it was, it, so it was broader than teaching writing. It was it was uh, yes. Well, I was I, I was teaching them how to write, but then uh, there there was a whole training effort that had to be put into place because there was going to be this massive computer system, and I started to I joined uh, the uh, uh, American Association for Training and Development, and I went to a, to uh, meetings in New York to learn what I could, because now you can study that kind of thing. But in those days, that, uh, that academic endeavor didn't exist. And uh, at one of those meetings, I, uh, I met the uh, person in charge of training for the Bankers Trust Company uh, on Wall Street. And, uh, and I, I had gotten to the point after two and a half years uh, with the insurance company uh, where I was then reporting to someone who didn't know as much as I did. Mm. Uh, his name was Vic. I won't say his last name. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was the one who, who knew how to design training systems because I had gone out and taught myself. But in those days, you, in, you know, in 1965, you didn't put a woman in charge of anything. Uh, so they put this man in charge of me, and he thought it was his uh, job to uh, criticize what I did, even though he didn't know how to do it himself, and also to take credit for everything I did. Mm -hmm. So when uh, when uh, 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 someone from Bankers Trust Company met me uh, at this conference, I got I got pirated. He he called me up and he said, "How would you like to come and and uh, uh, join me?" And I couldn't wait to get out of there. Right. So right. I I made a beeline and uh, yeah. and one of the things I think that people do when they they could be reinventing themselves is they are afraid to leave uh, what feels like a secure nest to go to the next step. The next right. step gets dangled in front of them. And, and they know that they're going to have to lean uh, off the carousel horse uh, pretty far to catch that, uh, that gold ring, and they're afraid they're going to fall off, so they don't. And, uh, 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 but uh, I grew up with, with three brothers. There were four kids in my family, and I didn't grow up to be uh, uh, afraid of taking risks because I had to keep up with them. So I, I don't, I, that might have had something to do with it, but I, 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 I just made a beeline. Uh, and um, a couple of times in my life, my mom who never had the opportunities I did 
would say to me, well, why do you want to do that, sweetie? You're doing so well where you are. Right. And, uh, but I always, um, I always thought, uh, in fact, at one point she said, uh, but now you're a single mom and you're going to do this. And I said, mom, I'm not going to starve. The baby won't starve. You'll give us a bowl of soup. Right. You know, I was just, it, to me, if I was going to, uh, if I was going to stay motivated and stay energetic and keep my eyes on the prize, it had to be a prize worth having. So. Right, right. Yeah, I think that sometimes, yeah, you and I have had conversations over the years about this. So the whole issue of risk and security, and I think that um, that's people are, you know, there's a perception of security, but. You know, increasingly people, are, I think, are getting it that that's somewhat illusory. And um, I think that sometimes I remember when I left a, a job that I'd been at for a long time, um, as I was leaving, um, you know, I, I sensed that uh, things were not going well there. Uh, they, they were okay. And I, I probably had job security. Um, but I, I felt the company was not going the right direction. And they were not interested in what I had to say and my advice. And uh, it was also a time when I could sense, you know, in the news media business that, um, um, you know, there were, there were going to be layoffs and the, the business was changing. And, and um, so, but I, there, was no, there was no immediate threat. And my, my boss, you know, said, you know, I was offered a buyout and um, I took it. And uh, as I was leaving, he said, why are you going? I said, well, you know, it's time to do something different, you know. Um, he said, well, you know, we, but what's the problem here? I said, well, <laughs> you're not doing what, what I think, you know, I, I made you some suggestions about what I wanted to do, where I think you should be going, and you're not going to do it. He said, well, what, don't you have a job? And I said, no. And he said, well, why? And he said, I said, well, look, if the risk of staying is as great as the risk of going, I'm going to go. <laughs> you know, I have a... A buyout, just like we'll talk about later on when you had a similar situation of a buyout. Um, and uh, but that's what I think you need to really take that leap. You know, when when you when you really must, you know, emotionally and for the sake of your uh, your future, really. Um, you know, I think I, you're so right about that. And I think one of the things that people don't understand that they have to do. In, in work career or in any kind of an endeavor is to shepherd their own motivation. People uh, will allow themselves to leak motivation on their way to work in order to hold on to what they think is a secure job. But to me, that's a recipe for failure. If, you're, if you don't take your energy, your creativity, your, your zest, uh, to work with you every day, how can you be really successful in what you're doing? And people don't really understand that they shouldn't just keep trudging along, uh, leaving their motivation in their footprints as they go to work in the morning, that that's not a recipe for success. Yeah, I remember you telling me once about literally that when you were driving your daughter past Port Authority, you know, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we stopped uh, at a red light. She she was going to Hunter College High and we were living downtown. So and I was driving to Westchester to a client and uh, we stopped there almost every morning and we watched the people leaving Port Authority and going to work. 
And you could tell. And I said to my daughter, I said, sweetie, look, pick out which people you see who are who like their jobs and which people who hate their jobs. And you could see it in their posture, in their pace, in their in the way they were carrying their physical bodies across Eighth Avenue. It was uh, easy to see. And uh, so that was uh, interesting to me. And I started to watch people in because a lot of my clients had uh, uh, and I started traveling all over the place and I'd be in a parking lot in the morning watching people going to work and then back out in the parking lot when I watched them leave work and you could see it you could see it in their in their uh, energy level right right yeah uh, we're going to take a break shortly but before that I just wanted to uh, you know we'll be talking about um, uh, some of your time at the bank, uh, you know, on Wall Street. And I think people today, they we sort of take advantage, you know, that certainly they're, you know, this is Women's History Month. We acknowledge the contributions of women, uh, but we don't get a chance to really talk enough, I think, about people who broke some ground in this area. So um, you're, as part of your next iteration, you got involved with affirmative action for women. Again, sort of accidentally, Right. I mean, you were doing something uh, I was, else. It was intentional too. Um, I was at Bankers Trust Company uh, on uh, Wall Street uh, in the in the sixties and and early seventies, and I was in the training. I was in uh, what would now be called HR. It was called the Personnel Department in those right. days, and um, and that. The training department, which I was running at that point, was part of that department. And the, uh, there was a lot of talk about affirmative action, and and we were very in touch. We tried to stay very in touch with trends that right. were going on in other companies and other industries. Right. So, Pat, we're going to just and, let's hold that thought. We're okay. going to just take a quick break, and when we'll okay. come back. We're going to be talking with Patricia King much more about um, her journey of reinvention and affirmative action for women. Come right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Bravehearts Radio Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in.
You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're here talking with Patricia King about her journey of reinvention over her career. And when we, uh, before the break, we were just talking with her about her time on Wall Street at a bank dealing with um, the beginning of affirmative action for women for her. Yeah. Actually, uh, where I got into the affirmative action business was uh, a, a program for minorities. Uh, the, the people who were running the bank then uh, were very uh, enlightened and uh, especially the chairman. And we knew that there were probably going to be laws passed uh, to uh, ensure equal opportunities. And we decided that we would start such a progress, uh, such progress before the law required it. That was, that was the strategy because that way uh, the bank would uh, save itself any kind of uh, legal issues. And so I worked on the affirmative action program for minorities, and there were about um, uh, four or five of us on the team that worked on that. And I did the statistics because I had been around computers, and, and in those days they could run certain kinds of computer records for me. And so I could say what the statistical uh, situation was. And so I worked on that team and, and it worked quite well and it was in place, but I still had access to those computer records. And I, and it wasn't like today where you could just query a computer, somebody had to run it for right. you. And so I, uh, I thought, well, uh, because I went to my convent school and I was taught by fierce nuns who mm-hmm. were very into, uh, educating the minds of women, uh, I, I came out ready for the feminist revolution of the, of the 60s. And there was a lot of talk about uh, what about women, there should, be, there should be opportunities for women as well. So I, I, ran the, uh, I ran the data and what I found out, this is gonna sound funny today, because, uh, but it wasn't such a crazy salary. But if you drew a line at $15,000 a year, 80% of the men who worked for the bank were above that line and 80% of the women were below it. And the, and the distribution uh, for the total uh, employee base was about 50-50. Hmm. So I said we should do an affirmative action program for women. And I, and I tried to sell that to my bosses. And... Um, they they didn't they kind of didn't get very enthusiastic about it. <laughs> uh, uh, they uh, it, it was kind of a joke. Uh, uh, they joked a lot uh, about uh, uh, women, uh, ambitious women, mm-hmm. and uh, so rather than putting a team together to work with me and. And do this. They were all men. Uh, they said, "Well, go ahead and do it." 
And I said, all by myself. And, and they said, well, you know, it's going to be uh, uh, about women. You should do it your, yourself. So mm-hmm. I said, well, where do I start? And they said, well, you have to go to see the chairman of the board. And how do I do that? And they said, you have to call his executive assistant. And, they, and her name is Miss Travis. And uh, she's no bra burner. I don't think you're going to find a sympathetic mm-hmm. ear with her. That's what they said. <laughs> so I, uh, I I went to my desk and and being the uh, rather jejune person that I am, uh, never thinking uh, this is terrible. I should get angry, and I just well, what the heck? I'll do it. I called her up and I told her who I was and what I wanted, and she said, "Will next Wednesday at two o'clock do?" Hmm. Is a British accent. She right. and I are still friends, and she still has that British accent after mm. all these years. And uh, so I went back to my boss and I said, "Okay, I'm going to see. I'm going to see the chairman next Wednesday at two. I thought they were going to fall off their chairs. <laughs> they were so surprised. And I and I went to uh, see. Uh, I went for my to make my presentation to the chairman." And uh, I met Doris for the first time, and uh, she leaned over her desk and she said to me, I'm so glad that someone is, pri- is finally prying, trying to do something about this. It's just a terrible situation. And uh, women, uh, so she was absolutely, neither one of us ever burned a bra, but... <laughs> <laughs> We knew who we, we who we were, what we wanted. At one point, before I went into the chairman's office, she took me in the women's room to make sure I was, you know, looking exactly the way I should. And as we were leaving, she said to me, "We will fight them in the branches. We will fight <laughs> them in the department." <laughs> she was, she was just great. And so, uh, so that's what I did. And uh, we installed uh, a, a, an affirmative action program um, uh, for women that was probably 68. And, uh, and at that point, I also wrote the first um, maternity leave policy that the bank had. And I needed to uh, write that policy and get it passed as fast as possible because I was already, I was married and I was already pregnant. Mm. <laughs> so I, uh, so there I, uh, there I was and, and I got to, uh, to participate in that and contribute to a book on the subject. It was, it was uh, really very early on because it wasn't until 69 after my baby girl was born that uh, that the uh, the law really changed. Right. So uh, I really considered that one of the most wonderful opportunities I ever had. Right. And right. Uh, and I uh, I love yeah. doing that. Yeah, but it's you know, and so you you brought about some some significant change. But as as you would also learn, there's sort of a price, you know, that not everybody is happy with it. You know, even even positive change you know, uh, has a backwash to it. And, and so you had to sort of once again, kind of rethink. So tell, tell us what happened next. Uh, uh, well, what happened, what happened next were some, some of them were just changes that were happening in, uh, in the banking industry. And um, some of them were changes that were happening in my life. Um, but eventually 
I uh, I ran into resistance from uh, from the the men who worked above me, my boss and my boss's boss, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that and at that point, uh, my then husband was uh, uh, also working for the bank. He had been a vice president of the stock exchange, but then he he was uh, pirated from there to the bank, and he. Uh, and, and that marriage was not going to work out. It was, uh, uh, sad to say, but it wasn't. And I had a little girl mm-hmm. and, um, it was awkward for me to continue working there for the bosses that I had, uh, who, uh, and at one point they just decided they were going to transfer me since I knew statistics, they were going to send me to work in the marketing department. And I didn't want to work in the marketing department. I liked what I was doing and I valued what I was doing. And I didn't think I would value what I would be doing in the, in the marketing department. Plus, it was very awkward for the two of us to have important jobs in the same company when we were going through not really an acrimonious, but not a particularly friendly mm-hmm. So I had to get out of there. And, that, and they said they would send me to the marketing department. I didn't want that job. So I convinced them. I made them an offer they couldn't refuse. <laughs> and they, uh, uh, they were offering packages to people who were being let go, you know, who were being fired, right. downsized, or whatever we call it that day, that, these days. But they, uh, I convinced them they should give that package to me. And, uh, so what I had was six months salary and my pension small because I was young. I was only, I was only 31. Um, and it was, um, uh, my opportunity to start my own business. Right. Right. So I did. Right. Uh, so I think that the, you know, one of the expressions you've told me often is sort of like, well, follow the heat and light. And yes. that's what you did. That's what you did. Yeah. But uh, so, so uh, now, now you're into, you're starting your own business and it's a different kind of uh, situation. You're, you're a single mom. Um, and, uh, and then how did you figure out, well, what kind of business am I going to do? And how can I, again, use my skills to reinvent what it is that I do in this phase? Yeah. I was doing for the bank, some pretty high level or uh, organization development work. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and and uh, in those days, you didn't get a degree in that. Now you get an MBA and 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 right. include a PhD, and you get credentials. But we did, that that wasn't that didn't exist. But I, it was pretty high level work, uh, and I didn't think that as a thirty one year old woman who uh, looked younger than she was, um, and. A, we're still talking about women are still trying to claw their way out of the ghetto. Um, I didn't think that would work. Uh, but what I thought I could do was training. I knew training very well and I had, uh, had that kind of a job. And so I went back to, uh, and, but I thought what I needed to get myself into client companies was the thin edge of a wedge. Mm-hmm. That if I try to tell them, I can tell you, I can, I can consult with you on organizational effectiveness, that they would say, are you crazy? You're, first of all, you're the wrong age. And second of all, you're the wrong sex. You, you, know, 
get out of here. So, but I, uh, so what I did was I put together a training program to teach uh, business writing. Mm. And I offered it, and, and then I looked at who should be my clients. And without really understanding whether it was true or not, I made the assumption that there would be a lot of competition for those kinds of consulting uh, 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 arrangements in New York City, that New York was, was very competitive. So I looked at the the suburban surrounding suburban areas and probably one of the most respected uh, companies when it came to how advanced and how enlightened their training programs uh, were was uh, General Foods, now Kraft General Foods. And they were in White Plains. So I thought, well, I'll start at the top. Right. <laughs> Uh, I'll see if they'll if they'll hire me and and I always uh, this is one of the things that every people always say you know you start at the bottom and work your way up well yeah uh, th- there had been a lot of that in my family in my history I wasn't sure that was the the right way to enter so I I sent a letter mm-hmm. to the and I knew that people uh, hated to write and they had to write and they didn't do it well and I knew what the problems were so I put together a training program. And I wrote a letter to the training director of General Foods. And I told him at the end of my letter, one-page letter, uh, I will be calling you in the next few days to talk about the possibilities. And I called him, and he, and he took my call, and, uh, and he listened to my little spiel. And then he said, um, can you teach technical writing? <laughs> Uh, and and I said I told him about my work as as a technical writer and a teacher of technical writing, but that was computer stuff. He said these are chemists. I said, oh, chemistry. I love chemistry. I minored in <laughs> chemistry. And he said, you majored in English and you minored in chemistry. I said, yeah, I like chemistry. I, so he said, all right, go and see. And he, and he sent me from White Plains to Tarrytown. Right. And and pretty soon, General Foods was my client. And eventually, I was doing for them the kinds of things that I had been doing at the bank. I just It just kind of, once I was in the door... I could then uh, I could then enlarge what uh, they saw as my capabilities. I also had when I was looking for new clients this wonderful story to tell. They would say, "Well, where have you been doing this?" And I would say, "General Foods," and they would say, "Oh, <laughs> you know, it was impressive." So, uh, so yeah. So pretty soon, I uh, I. I, I was well into a 25-year career that started out in the New York metropolitan area, uh, enlarged to the whole United States, and eventually I was doing uh, management training in Asia, in Europe. It was it was glorious and it was fun. Right. I had colleagues who worked for me. Uh, we uh, it was a little company. There were most at the most, there were five of us, right. and it was uh, and it was delightful. Yeah, and this is also, uh, I think, around the time that that you and I met, uh, because I was a, a business journalist, and my my um, my area of uh, of coverage, my beat was the workplace, and which included management. And uh, I was doing a, a piece about um, 
uh, an, an iconic figure, particularly at the time in New York City, uh, George Steinbrenner on his management style. And um, uh, as a lifelong Yankee fan, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and so you know, yes, he he did eventually. We won many championships in the late nineties, and, and he had won a couple, but. But a lot of people were had issues with the way he, he ran things, the way he talked to people. And yeah. so I was doing an article about that. And, um, and then uh, all of a sudden, I see this author who wrote this book called Never Work for a Jerk. <laughs> and that was you. <laughs> yes, it was me. Um, it was my, uh, my fourth book. Uh, the, my first book uh, was uh, a, 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 a book four managers on how to con, uh, con, uh, motivate employees and conduct performance appraisals. It was called performance planning and appraisal. And uh, that was another one of those top down things. I, the first place I went to sell it was McGraw Hill and they were the top uh, publisher of business books at the time. And they bought it. And, uh, and then I wrote a couple of other books that were, one was about uh uh, business writing. People were just beginning to compose their stuff on computers. So right. it was, there was a book about that. And then there was a book about the new organization where people didn't have secretaries anymore. And, and they had, there were administrative people who worked with a group and how to make that work. So I, I wrote those three books. But when I, when I was lecturing on management, lots of times people would uh, raise their hands and say, Everything you say that I should do for the people who report to me makes perfect sense to me, but my boss doesn't do that for me. And and I would kind of counsel them as part of the, the, the training conference to how to manage their bosses. And uh, one day, a guy wanted to play that game, Ain't It Awful. I would suggest to him that something he could do to make his boss more... Uh, 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 cognizant of his worth and treat him better. And he would say he already did it and it didn't work. And so I went through four or five of these things. And finally I, I said, you know something, George, there's really a rule we all ought to follow. Never work for a jerk. If your boss doesn't see the wisdom of what you are suggesting to him, you should just, get a different job. Well, Pat, we're going to just use that as a, as a break. We're going to take another quick break, but come right back folks with more about how never to work for a jerk. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to hear a show about football? How about football moms? What if we told you that was just a start? Tune in for Double Down with Garrett and Mac. Audrey Garrett and Jeracy Mack are moms to some well-known NFL players. Sure, they'll talk football and raising their kids to achieve greatness, but they'll also talk about community and world issues, motherhood, news, and lifestyle topics. Listen in every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. 
Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. You are listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We are here talking with Patricia King. Uh, and we before the break, we were just talking about when she published her um, famous tome that got her on the Oprah Winfrey show, uh, Never Work for a Jerk. So you, you just said you, it came about from a almost flip comment, but it, yeah. it was, it, it took off for 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> it, did. It, got, it was funny because I got a big laugh, Never Work for a Jerk. Uh, and so for the next several months, when those kinds of discussions came up, I would say, well, I have a a new aphorism that I use on these occasions, never work for a jerk. And then I began to think there's a book in this. And and I had had published three uh, nonfiction books. And I proposed that one. Uh, The person who had been my editor at McGraw-Hill had gone to a different company, but he wanted it right away. And I even got a literary, literary agent to mm-hmm. re- represent it because it had that kind of cachet. And there were no such things then as books uh, about managing your boss or uh, keeping your motivation. Those kinds of things became pretty, uh, pretty common. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it, I was on the Oprah show. I had, uh, I had uh, I did a a book tour that took me all over uh, the United States. I was on TV shows. I was radio interviews, all kinds of that. And uh, and uh, uh, I would say a funny story uh, uh, because I was on the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, I had uh, a bunch of uh, people in my extended family uh, who. Uh, weren't particularly impressed with me, uh, but I started getting invited to all of their weddings. Uh, and uh, the, one of my male cousins, uh, I couldn't go. I had to. I was going to be in Frankfurt doing something or something, and uh, and I couldn't go to the wedding. And his his bride, whom I had never met, they lived in the in the. Midwest. I hadn't seen this cousin in years, and uh, his his intended bride called me up and told me how disappointed she was that I wasn't going to come to the wedding because I was the one who was on the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, Right, right, (laughs) ridiculous. It is so funny, but uh, but yeah, and and the people say, well, what is Oprah like? Uh, If you're a guest on that, if you were in those days a guest on that show, unless you were George Clooney. I don't think you really got to know Oprah. You just, you know, you did your job. Uh, but uh, it, the book uh, really had legs it, because it, the title is Flip, but 
the advice in it was really something people were desperate for. Uh, in those days, somewhere between 60 to 80% of the people who had jobs hated them. Right. And the most likely reason why was their boss. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that book stayed in print. It was, uh, uh, it was the original uh, hardcover uh, was replaced by a paperback. And when those two went out of print, Barnes & Noble had the Barnes and Noble edition mm-hmm. and a, a hardcover Barnes and Noble edition, which stayed in print for the next 13 years. So for 17 wow. years, that book was in print right. and it was translated into Dutch and Turkish. And it was, it was fun. Yeah. Uh, so it had a lot of, yes, legs and, uh, and the currency that stayed. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, I remember, you know, afterward to, you know, we, I, I would um, call you up from time to time when we, I was working in management pieces. And I remember, that it, it 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 was a terrific book and it and it really did have a lot of um, good um, you know good advice and good thoughts and 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 the story that I I've told other people about you is that when I became uh, a, a middle manager at at, uh, at Newsday at the time I was um, you know a writer and then I you know then I became the manager of um, the several people who I were my colleagues you know and uh, my equals other reporters. And, um, you know, as, as often happens, you get rewarded for good work. So I was promoted to this position. So I called you up and I told you, and <laughs> you just, you paused for a second and said, well, congratulations, Ron. And you know what you've done? I said, well, what? She said, you've just put a big target on your back. And, and <laughs> I, I paused and said, oh, okay. So um, that impressed me that you weren't going to sugarcoat this. You knew what the real issues were of being manager, senior manager, middle manager, and, and lots of issues that are, you know, that you really have to think about. You know, they're not easy ones to manage. No. And, and, and in fact, uh, the hardest thing is becoming the manager of people who used to be your peers and your colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, the people you used to have a lunch with. Uh, when I taught uh, first-level managers, which I did a lot of during my, uh, during my consulting career, I would start the session uh, by uh, having everyone introduce themselves and, uh, and go around the table. And there were usually 12 maybe 15 people in the room at a time. And I, and then when everybody was settled, I would say, okay, so what we're going to do for the next two days is to talk about what you do now that you got the job you always thought you wanted. And, and because that's the hardest that, right. you know, first level management is is so hard and uh and people are not usually prepared for assuming a leadership role and the hardest one as i said is with people who are uh who used to be your peers because the temptations are to either stay as chummy as you possibly can with them and just be one of the guys Mm -hmm. uh or to suddenly uh, take a tone with them 
that's dictatorial to mm-hmm. keep them in their place so they don't think they can take advantage of you because they had lunch with you every Friday for the past three years. Um, it's it, it's a that's a tricky that's right. a tricky job. Right, right. That's, I I was warning you. It, it sounds right. when you no. say it. Now, no. So. no, it was it was invaluable advice at the time. <laughs> So, um, so now, you know, you're an international management uh, consulting firm, and uh, you've, you've gone, as previously, towards the heat and light. But then, as I recall, the heat and light got to you, and it started to burn out. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I burned out. Uh, and I knew about burnout. I had written about it and never worked for a jerk. And I had, of course, researched it to know that it really was real. And... Uh, at that point, uh, my consulting practice was going full force, and my daughter was in college, and um, I had been in Asia for, for 15 days, in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Tokyo uh, for uh, Bankers Trust, and then uh, these two banks have now are now called Chase, but I, Chemical Bank was also my client in those days. And they had me scheduled to go to uh, Frankfurt and Geneva. Uh, and so I was in Asia for 15, uh, for 15 days, and then I came back to New York, and I was in New York for a few days, and then I went to Frankfurt and Geneva, and then I came back to New York, and then the ne- I had the weekend off, and I was back on the road. And I woke up one morning, and I didn't know where I was. I didn't, and it was, you know that, how you can wake up when it's not quite dawn, and the alarm hasn't gone off, and right. you're in a hazy, uh, almost still asleep state, and I got panicky. I, I thought, where am I? What day is it? What did I do yesterday? How long have I been here? I didn't know uh, the answer to those questions. And uh, in those days, there were ashtrays in hotel rooms. And I looked at the ashtray and it said Holiday Inn. <laughs> and I went to the window and I looked out the window and there was an interstate highway. And there was a big sign that said MacArthur Avenue, three quarters of a mile, a big green sign. And on the other side, across the highway... There was uh, a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and on my side of the highway, there was an Exxon station. What does this tell you? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Could have been anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So, so I thought, is this is this Kankakee? Am I in Kankakee? Am I in Greensboro? What am I supposed to be doing today? And I didn't know what day it was. And today. I could look at my Apple watch and it tells me, uh, or I could uh, pick up my phone and it tells me. But in those days, there were no, this was 1994, 95. There were no such uh, uh, ways of finding out what day it was. And I was a little shy about calling the, uh, the operator and asking, where am I in? And what day is it? Uh, eventually, I woke up enough uh, and I came out of the panic attack, but I realized that I had to stop doing what I was doing. It was just not going to uh, work anymore. And there was this idea that I always, always uh, 
hoped for the the ambition of nine-year-old me right. who wanted to be a novelist. And I thought, and I had written fiction my whole life, but I had never really tried to write anything publishable. And I had written four books by then, but and lots of articles and things, but they were all nonfiction. And I thought, my kid is about to graduate from college. She doesn't have any tuition debt. Uh, I don't really want to do this anymore. I've got to get myself out of this. So over the next two years, I made a plan for how I was going to extricate myself from that business because I already had stuff on my calendar that I had committed to do uh, for the next year and a half. And I had colleagues who depended on my business for their uh, incomes. And so I made a plan to withdraw. And at that point, I was really just turning over all of the work to my colleagues and the clients and that they would take on, uh, Fran would take on these clients and, and Hank would take on those clients and, and it was going to, and I was, and a lot of people said, why are you doing this? You're so successful. And I thought, this, I was heading, just as what I said earlier that uh, people don't, they have to shepherd their own motivation. I right. couldn't keep doing this. Right. Uh, because burnout is real and it makes you do your work badly. Right. Right. Uh, so I, uh, I started to extricate myself and my, what I thought I was going to do was write fiction, see if I could really write a novel. Right. And just at that moment, my husband, my, uh, David, who, who uh, was in the marketing business and his, and his uh, colleague, decided to do what I had been telling them to do for 12 years. They were going to leave the dumb company they were working for, and they were going to start their own business because uh, they were making money for somebody else that they could be making for themselves, and they could have a nicer life because they wouldn't be uh, under the thumb of people who, who didn't appreciate them. No. Beth, we're gonna we're gonna take the break now. Uh, toward the end, of the, we're coming to the end of the show, and I'm gonna keep our listeners in suspense because now we're transitioning to your latest chapter. Uh, but we're gonna have a whole other show in April to cover how you made this transition from you know nonfiction to fiction. It's an equally fascinating story about how you did this. But uh, so there's much more to talk about. But we're gonna close for now. I want to thank you for being such a terrific guest and for such a thought-provoking conversation. Um, we're gonna, we can keep it going, and even at the end of the show, if you want to learn more about Patricia, um, you can go to my website, rebelresources.com, and click on the 45 Forward tab, learn more about her, and you can also click on the tab, uh, click on the link for her, uh, her pen name's website, Anna Maria Alfieri, and get a jump on, uh, on her books. Then she has a series on South America and Africa, and you can take a look at that. So um, again, um, uh, thanks for joining me today. Be sure to join me next Monday at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, when I'll be talking with Donna Butts, um, who is the executive director of Generations United, whose mission it is to improve the lives of children, youth, and older people through intergenerational collaboration. So thanks for joining me today. Uh, have a great week, and I'll join you next Monday. Music
Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.